It's time for The Cable Guide, the podcast where I discuss every appearance of Nathan Christopher Charles Dayspring Ascani Sun Summers, the all-purpose adventure guy known for ill-defined reasons as Cable. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode four. Welcome back to the show, guys. This episode, we are going to take a break from the main New Mutant series and talk about the 1990 summer annual event, Days of Future Present. Now, I am going to also break from my normal format of the show. Uh, If you've been listening to the three previous episodes, you'll remember that usually I do a synopsis for each issue discussed in the show and then break it down into a discussion. I'm not going to do that this one because this is not exactly a Cable story. Cable is in these issues and there is something brought up in this story that I think was supposed to affect Cable but doesn't and at most he's a tertiary character. So I'm going to do one long synopsis for the whole story and then do excuse me, then do individual discussions of each issue. Now, heads up, uh, this is a somewhat confusing story. I just finished writing the synopsis for it and my brain hurts a little bit. Um, but it is ultimately a story about nostalgia, about how we hold on to the things from our past. And speaking of nostalgia, I have quite a bit of nostalgia for the story, perhaps more than it warrants. And if you've listened to any of my other shows in the past, that might be a surprising comment coming from me because I've mentioned I don't have a lot of super positive nostalgia from my childhood for reasons. But as I'm going through these issues of New Mutants for the show, and as I'm doing a, uh, I don't even call it a reread, a first time read through of a lot of 90s X-Men, I'm discovering a lot of nostalgia that maybe I had kind of repressed. Mm, Excuse me. But uh, it's something that I'm really enjoying. And I got these issues on in the summer of 1990 when they came out. And I got them while I was on vacation with my grandparents. Um, At the time, my mom and dad and I were living in a suburb of Savannah, Georgia. My grandparents were living in a suburb of Macon, Georgia. And as what (laughs) happened just about every summer until I graduated high school, pretty much the day after uh, school let up for the summer, I got shipped off to my grandparents to hang out with them for the majority of summer break. And uh, as we usually would, we drove up to Ohio to a suburb of Columbus where my grandparents had lived most of their adult lives to visit uh, my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And I remember almost nothing about that vacation. It was not momentous. We mostly just kind of hung out at my aunt and uncle's house. But I distinctly remember going to the mall that was relatively nearby and going to a B. Dalton booksellers and getting these four comics along with a few others and just curling up on my my aunt and uncle's sofa and just reading them all in a day and really enjoying them. Now, they don't necessarily hold up as well in the reread, but I do have pleasant memories of that experience, mostly because of these comics. So, 
uh, <laughs> I was not excited to go back and reread them after flipping through them, but the stories, the story is better than what I was expecting. If, as I said, it is somewhat confusing. So let's jump into it, shall we? Days of Future Present, Summer of 1990. A man that appears to be an adult Franklin Richards from the future of Earth 811 travels back in time to the present day of our reality. Seemingly disoriented and possessing reality-warping powers, future Franklin begins altering places significant to his earlier life, such as the Fantastic Four's headquarters and the remnants of the Xavier Mansion, to match his memories and deleting others like X-Factor's ship that contradict them. Sentinels, hounds, and scout drones employed by the mutant-hunting Ahab track future Franklin through time. When they attack him, however, he barely notices them, and their weapons fire passes through him, almost as if he isn't real. When the Fantastic Four, the New Mutants, and Banshee of X-Men locate him, Franklin becomes horrified at the destructive potential of his powers and blocks his young self and the present from accessing them, sending the boy into a coma. Ahab believes that future Franklin's actions have brought their history full circle, as in their time Franklin had the potential for great powers, but Ahab had killed him before he could manifest those powers. Adult Franklin seeks out Rachel Summers, who, in their shared future, led him to his death at Ahab's hands in her role as a hound. He tries to negate her powers to make her more like his memory of her, but Rachel's bond with the Phoenix Force proves too much for even Franklin's manipulation of reality. Later, after the combined forces of the Fantastic Four, the New Mutants, X-Factor, and Banshee and Forge of the X-Men repel an army of Ahab's hounds, adult Franklin appears and abducts baby Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. Later, future Franklin finds and reconciles romantically with Rachel. The two of them inform the collected Fantastic Four and X-Factor of their plans to go off to parts unknown together with baby Nathan, and Franklin psionically manipulates Reed, Sue, and Scott into giving him their blessing. Later still, when Gambit and a de Storm join the assembled heroes, Storm familiarizes the others with the alternate future that Rachel originally came from. Reed Richards theorizes that though the X-Men foiled the instigating event that led to that future, the events of their universe's timeline may play out in such a way as to lead to a possible future that is parallel to that of Earth-811. Meanwhile, Ahab captures the Invisible Woman and Cyclops, transforming them into hounds. They track Rachel and future Franklin, as well as baby Nathan Christopher, capturing them for Ahab. The collected heroic teams determine Ahab's location and attack, only to be defeated by Ahab's futuristic technology though the mutant hunter retreats after failing to kill Franklin and Rachel, leaving Scott and Sue transformed into hounds on the molecular level. Storm helps adult Franklin realize that his actual physical self died in his future and that his psychic essence had followed Rachel across the timelines. As Franklin's psychic ghost begins to discorporate, his energies combine with Rachel's, returning Sue and Scott to normal and returning young Franklin's powers to their full potential with unforeseen consequences to the future of the timeline. Okay, so before I start discussing the individual issues, there's something I want to put into context. So like the synopsis said, uh, Ahab and Rachel 
and the ghost of adult Franklin are all originally from the future of Earth 811. And if you're not familiar, Earth 811 is the uh, alternate timeline that the events of the Days of Future Past story arc takes place in. And if you're not familiar with that, Days of Future Past is a story where about 20 years in forward from whatever the present is at any moment during the compressed timeline, that uh, Sentinels have taken over North America and have pretty much eradicated the mutants. Now, what I want to clarify is that Days of Future Past is not a possible future of the main Marvel continuity, the 616 universe. It is the future of an alternate timeline because even though the inciting incident that leads to the events of Days of Future Past is the assassination of Robert Kelly, it is, um, it's not the only deviation. The timeline deviates before that event. And most notably, the Jean Grey of that universe never gave in to the dark side of the Phoenix, Phoenix Force. She never went on a cosmic murder rampage and didn't kill herself. So that gene... Um, uh, married Scott and they had a kid and that kid was Rachel. Now how she came back to the present of the 616 timeline is a whole other thing that I don't want to get into, but I'm sure most of you have read the story, so it's fine. Moving on. Now the reason I want to talk about this is because I think this story forgets that a lot. Uh, sometimes it makes it clear in the uh, the narrator that the narrator remembers it, but the dialogue from the characters seems to forget it. Now that may have an excuse that I'll get to when I talk about it, but um, I just want I just want to mention it now at the beginning because I'm going to bring it up quite a bit as we start talking about these stories, especially as we get toward the last installment of the story. So the first of our four comics that comprise the story is Fantastic Four Annual number 23. And this is by Walter Simonson, Jackson Geif, and Jeff Isherwood. Now, I don't know, obviously, Simonson wrote it. Uh, Geif did the pencils. Um, I don't know who all did what else, though? Um, I'm assuming that Simonson did some of the inks on this, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. I assume maybe Isherwood is the colorist. I don't know. But we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this particular issue because it is not cable-centric at all. In fact, I don't think any X-Men-type characters appear in it other than our villain. But the cover is amazing. It is a close-up. It's from the kind of midsection up of our introductory villain Ahab. And reflected in his chest plate are the Fantastic Four. And if I did not know better, I would have assumed that this was a John Byrne cover. But apparently it is not. Apparently it is uh, Geis and Simonson working together. Again, I think it's Geis's pencils and Simonson's ink, inks doing a really good job of emulating what actually looks like 
late 80s, early 90s John Byrne. Um, so it's good, good stuff. Now, um, now I mentioned that it looked like um, it looked like Simon said did the inks on this. On the very first page, there are the first couple pages, there's a scene of the Fantastic Four flying home in the Fantastic Car and the energy um, trail that's coming from behind the Fantastic Car looks a lot like um, Simonson kind of signature energy. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I've talked about Jackson Geis's pencils a couple times before on different shows. Uh, back when I was still on Into the Weird with my friend Herman Lowe of the Long Box of Darkness podcast, I talked a little bit um, about the late 80s, early 90s uh, Doctor Strange series that was penciled by Geis. And Jason and I talked about an arc of Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., with uh, Wolverine as a guest star, and Geist did like maybe the first two or three episode uh, issues of that arc. And Geist is an interesting penciler. He's a penciler that I never really like on first glance, but he has he has this inevitable habit. I mean, it's not his fault, but when he leaves a book, he always gets replaced by someone whose art is just atrocious. So I always find myself kind of missing his work when he's gone. And he he's kind of what I think of as a late 80s, early 90s Greg Land. And what, am I, what I mean by that is his women always look like models. And, you know, Greg Land has this kind of is infamous for kind of uh, digitally copying um, um, like kind of, you know, magazine models into, into his books. And I don't think that's what guys does, but his women always have this kind of, uh, kind of artfully tousled hair of the era, which looks really nice, especially on Sue. Um, a lot of times they will pose in a way that's very model-esque, not the, not the kind of, uh, exploitative way that we would see some artists do a few years from now where it's, you know, it's always, you know, the, the, the back and the hips and the butt cocked in such a way that it looks painful, if not biologically impossible, but, you know, kind of like hands on hip and hip cocked out slightly to the side. And, um, in fact, some of his work almost looks a little Nagel-esque, um, Nagel being the artist who did this very minimalistic uh, portraits of women. He did the cover to a Duran Duran album in the 80s. And Geis's, look, Geis's art doesn't look anything like Nagel's, but a lot of the poses that he puts his women in have kind of a Nagel feel to it. Now, a couple other things of interest in here. The Fantastic Four this time is Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, Human Torch, and Ms. Marvel. And this is not uh, Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel. This is a good almost 25 years before Kamala Khan would appear. This is Sharon Ventura. And for those of you that aren't familiar with her, uh, Sharon is a character who appeared, I think, first in The Things self-titled series in the 80s. She was a 
well, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. She used to hang out with these guys called the Thunder Riders, who were originally Team America, which is just a whole other story of Marvel licensing weirdness from the 80s. And she, he, this is when he was a, super, a, a professional wrestler for the Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation, and she was inspired by him. So she went to the Power Broker to get superpowers, and he made her like super strong, super tough. And he um, employed Carl Malice to give the people powers at the time. The Power Broker did. And I've talked about Malice uh, briefly on Sentinel of Liberty. Um, Malice is a pretty much your stereotypical mad scientist. And he had this scheme where he would get the people that they gave powers to hooked on this drug. It was kind of like heroin. So you had to keep working for the power broker to keep getting the drug so you wouldn't go through really painful uh, withdrawals. And Sharon managed to skip out before she got the drug. And so they sent other superpowered people to capture her. And it's implied that she was sexually assaulted while she was in their custody. And Sharon's story just gets worse and worse from there. She's a really tragic character. Um, so shortly after that, when Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Woman took a leave of absence from the team, uh, Johnny and Ben each picked someone to replace them. Johnny picked uh, his former girlfriend, Crystal of the Inhumans, and Ben picked Sharon. And so Ben and Sharon were on a mission together and they were in a spaceship and it flew through some cosmic radiation and the thing mutated even further. He got really spiky. He almost looked like kind of a spiky humanoid dinosaur made out of orange rock. And Sharon became a female version of the thing, like how Ben looked when he first became the thing. And she was like suicidally depressed for a long time. And uh, like she, you know, was she couldn't hurt herself because she was so strong and so invulnerable. And so it became just this really intense cycle. And she eventually came to terms with her appearance and became one of the more well-rounded characters in the Marvel Universe for a little while. Um, ben at this time now, as of this story, has reverted back to his human form. So it's kind of the Fantastic Five, but Ben's just kind of hanging out, just kind of helping when he can, but not being as, you know, being particularly effective. Um, so that's that. Now Sharon will go through more tragedies as the Marvel Universe progresses. She mutates further. She becomes more monstrous. Uh, she becomes, uh, I think she goes evil for a while. So uh, it's... Not a, uh, not a very lighthearted character, unfortunately. But um, there is a neat little panel in here where the Fantastic Four run into um, like the kind of Bronze Age versions of, versions of themselves. And again, Geis is doing a good job of, it looks like a cross between Kirby and John Buscema, which is pretty neat. Um, let's see, flipping through. And we get, uh, speaking of guys kind of drawing women in a very model-esque way, when we see Rachel and Megan on Excalibur Lighthouse Island, that's a really good example of it. Like there's a panel where, you know, Rachel's kind of standing and looking at the sunset and she's got one leg raised on like some rocks and the legs down and, and you know, it's kind of staring very, she looks kind of majestic. And then there's another scene where she's like squatting down and kind of half sitting on a, on a really low step. 
and uh, Megan's laying in a hammock and her hair's all tousled and it looks really, really good. Um, Geist does a good job of drawing beautiful women who are posed sexily, but in a way that is not necessarily forced and does not come across as exploitative. Uh, let's see, we get our first shot of Ahab in this book. We don't see very much of him. Uh, we mostly just get him in shadow. And there's one scene in this book. So Franklin's basically showing up. He makes the, he turns the Four Freedoms Plaza back into the Baxter building. And, you know, that all goes on until he gets mad and leaves. And when he leaves, everything reverts back to normal. So his powers manipulate reality, but they seem to be based on his level of concentration and his proximity. He leaves there. He goes to the power family of Power Pack. And this is adult Franklin making the kids and the power kids and their parents see him as a five-year-old while he plays hide and seek with them. But to us, the reader, he's an adult and we see him crouching behind the sofa playing hide and seek. And it's really kind of creepy. Um, but uh, that's when... So Franklin, he goes off and he sees X-Factor's ship and he decides that that's going to be his next thing that he's going to focus on because that did not exist in his timeline. And the end of the issue says that the story will continue in the X-Factor annual, but it does not. It will continue in New Mutants annual, uh, and we will get to that shortly. There's a backup story about Volcana in this. Uh, and there's a backup, and then Moonstone's involved in it, and it's kind of interesting, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the main story, so we're going to skip it, and I'll be back in just a bit to talk about the New Mutants Annual. And that takes us on to New Mutants Annual number six, and the creatives on this are Louise Simonson is the writer. Um, let's see, where are the credits? Because they're not on here very clearly. There we go. We got Terry Shoemaker and Chris Wozniak on pencils, a plethora of inkers, Joe Rosen on le as letterer, Brad Van Cotter colorist, and Bob Harris editor. Now the cover is probably the best part of this ser of, of this issue. And it's got um, a young Frank uh, adult Franklin in a green uh, jumpsuit floating in the middle of the page with his arms outstretched and there's a bunch of sentinels in the background and uh sam and rain and tabitha and bobby are in their newer costumes and they're all tied up in barbed wire with a pair of identical hair metal hounds right in front of them and this covers by liefeld and it's pretty good um i'll be honest when i bought this i had a habit when i was a teenager of I would buy my comics and I would flip through them just looking at the pictures first, then I'd go back and read it. And I did not get the Fantastic Four part of this, uh, part of this series or part of this uh, story. And I honestly, because I didn't actually read the issue the first time I flipped it, I assumed this was the Beyonder because my only interaction with Secret Wars 2 as a kid when that was coming out was the Uncanny X-Men tie-in issues. And in there, um, that was when the Beyonder still was making himself look like Steve Rogers. 
<laughs> and in you know 80s and early 90s comics a lot of white blonde male muscular superheroes without their masks look pretty much identical so i thought this was supposed to be the beyonder but it's franklin and it's a pretty good cover so we go into the issue and franklin shows up at the uh, records of the xavier mansion and he makes it look like how it looked when he okay when i'm i'm gonna say when he was going there but so let's go ahead and address it now everything that franklin does as an adult in the present timeline is stuff that he wishes had happened because remember as it said in the synopsis adult franklin didn't have any powers and he died without manifesting any powers and somehow him being killed unleashed his his ability so what they what they explain going into this is that the power that this franklin kind of sort of wishes that he had as a as a young adult was the ability to create um like time duplicates of himself which is the ability that young franklin has at this point so apparently when he died it actually manifested his power and he sent it and this is a time duplicate of himself gone back in time so think like one of jamie madrox's duplicates only like somehow pulled out of the time stream or something i don't know manifested out of time energy i i don't really i'm not super familiar with with franklin richards i don't think he's a very interesting character um i like what um uh what was done with him in the early 2000s but you know that was a good run on on or mid 2000s late 2000s i should say um but man i i'm not a huge fantastic four fan to begin with and i I just don't get nathan not nathan uh franklin but anyway he goes and he makes the mansion look it's got all these like gun turrets and stuff on it um which is probably how it did look when he was a kid uh, or a young adult in that era um so he goes inside and he manifests first a original new mutants outfit but then as he walks in the door, it turns into this very early 90s version of a New Mutants outfit. And it's got pouches and it's got like a pistol on a, on a thigh holster. Um, and then we get our really first good look at uh, Ahab. And what the dial, what the narration says where he is, is a secret complex at a nexus where the present and the future meet. So... I think this kind of solves the problem of how Ahab got from the future of the 811 timeline to the present of the 616 timeline because I think his headquarters is kind of outside of the time stream. So that makes sense. It doesn't ever really explain how Franklin's time ghost got to the present of the 616. And my only thing that I've been able to piece together because I don't think they reference it. They don't, they don't make it very clear. I think it kind of somehow followed Rachel. So that's the best I can figure out. But we've got Ahab, and he looks pretty cool. I've always liked Ahab. I always thought Ahab was going to be a bigger deal than he was. 
because, you know, we'll see when we get to it here in a little bit. But, you know, I remember he was one of the, he was, he was probably a peg warmer, but, you know, they made a, a Toy Biz X-Men action figure out of him. But I don't think he appears a whole lot. I think he, he's in an Excalibur story that takes play, that comes out like three or four years after this. And I don't think he shows up again until extermination, uh, like last year or 2018 or whatever that was, that Kid Cable, Kid Cable killed uh, the cable that I like. Um, but yeah, I always I always thought Ahab would be a bigger than only was. And he looks really cool. Um, if you're not familiar with him, he's this big, grizzled-looking guy. And he looks like a robot pretty much from the neck down. His is kind of torso is this kind of purpley silver and these big plates and then he's got cybernetic arms and cybernetic legs and one of his legs ends in a peg <laughs> so he's got like a like a captain ahab peg leg and then he's got this big um like harpooning spear um i think he i think he looks really cool and he's got um he's got you know like the abraham lincoln beard and then he's got this He's kind of got reddish hair, and it kind of sticks up on top, and it's got this white kind of rogue streak in it. But anyway, he sends a hound and a bunch of, like, drones back through, back in time to the 616 timeline. Um, we get our first shot of the new mutants in this, and they're training in the danger room. And Boom Boom looks pretty cool. Um, I like that they made her her mini dress not quite as mini it looks like it actually covers parts of her legs instead of like just barely covering her unmentionables um it is weird that she's fighting in the danger room in a pair of high heels but other than that she looks pretty cool richter appears to have aged quite a bit um richter has always been kind of a fit if skinny teenager and here he looks like a buffed out 26 year old um, and also his mohawk has gotten a lot, uh, gotten a lot more volume to it. It's much thicker. It doesn't flop over. It just stands up in the middle. It looks like, he looks like Arax, Son of Thunder from early 80s DC comics. Um, and we got our first shot of Cable. And man, I do not like this artwork. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know these artists. Um, they're fine, but Cable looks pretty boring honestly the kids don't look quite right uh, like i said i think boom boom looks pretty good but they all look a little bit off uh man it's just not my favorite but you know it's an annual so you get what you get that's fine and then franklin shows up with his version of the new mutants from his timeline's future and again i don't know if these guys were ever supposed to have existed because a lot of this is franklin's Franklin's wish for what he had happened. So I'm going to say that he probably hung out at the Xavier Mansion a lot because he was technically a mutant. He just had restrained powers. And maybe all these other guys did exist and he hung out with them, but he didn't get to um, maybe train with them or go on missions with them or whatever they did. But we've got a large African-American guy who's got like a big club and then we've got this uh, lady whose name is Blue, and she's very obviously supposed to be Nightcrawler's daughter because she can teleport everybody at once. And we have an Asian guy who rides this kind of sky cycle thing, 
and he has a samurai sword which flips open into a bow and when it's a bow he can shoot energy arrows like that guy from the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon and then we have a very young version of Rachel and we have Doug Ramsey and this was this is what I remember most of this story and I remember it being a, a lot more intense than it really is but when Warlock sees Doug and he goes to hug him Doug kind of explodes into the Magus and uh, he's obviously so this version of Doug has obviously been infected by the techno-organic virus now at the time this came out I did not know a lot about Warlock you know my my New Mutants reading had been very very on and off I missed the whole Magus story so I thought, and I knew what the Magus was, but I didn't know the relationship that Technarchy children had with their parents. So apparently how it works is you have a techno-organic techno being who sires an offspring, and this offspring is always called Warlock, and the sire is always called Magus, and the two are destined to try to kill each other. And if the Magus wins, the Warlock dies. If the Warlock wins... Then the warlock becomes the magus and then has another offspring and it continues on and on and on. So by extension, if Ram, if Doug is calling himself magus, then I'm guessing that what happened, and they don't really spell it out, but it sounds like that warlock infected Doug at some point because they were always, you know, merging and Doug became, you know, so which means the warlock then became the magus, which means that Doug must have killed Warlock in the reality, and then he became the Magus. But he is, like, super violent. He's a very 90s version of Warlock. Um, and what I think is interesting about this is... Now, obviously, we get a Doug Ramsey-Warlock merged being a few years after this in the main Marvel continuity called Douglock, which is the worst codename ever. But I kind of saw it coming because of this. And also in the 1991 annual, after Warlock dies, which we'll be getting to in a few episodes from now, there's a scene where rain spreads Warlock's ashes on Doug's grave, which is how we eventually get uh, Doug Lock. But I thought it was going to somehow... I thought it was going to be Doug coming back as the Magus, which I have not read the Excalibur stories with Doug Ock in them yet. They are on my reading list for the near future. I'm looking forward to them. But um, I think maybe the Magus idea would have been more interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. When I was 17, I thought it would have been more interesting. But um, so, and then what's happening is that Franklin is not only summoning these alternate future new mutants, he also is transforming the mansion as a whole. So now the mansion is rebuilt on top of the sub-basement and the alternate future uh, Banshee is there. And he has long hair and he's missing an eye and he's missing his left hand. And it looks like a peg leg hand which uh, and again Banshee has red hair and here he has a beard so keep that in mind for the next few minutes 
So they go on, and Franklin gets frustrated because nothing matches up with how he remembers. And so Banshee goes away, and the alternate future New Mutants go away, and the, uh, the mansion itself goes away. So we're going on, and uh, Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Woman and Banshee are flying along in the Fantastic car, and they're tracing Franklin's energies, and they land at the at the ruins of the X-Mansion, and by now everybody's come out. And there's a scene that cracks me up. It's on page 21 of the digital copy, where Cable's standing outside, and Reed's lower half is in the Fantastic car, and he's stretching out his midsection, and he's holding Frank on the, and he's like stretching over to Cable. And it looks like he's going, here, strange man with a cybernetic arm and a bunch of guns, hold this small child. That's not what he's doing, but it's what he looks like. And it's pretty funny. So they all swap stories and they're all going to go after Franklin. But then they get attacked by the Hound and the um, all the drones. And they fight, 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 and fight, 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 and fight, fight, fight. And during the fight, uh, one of the ha- the hound is uh, hurts rain, and so Richter blasts the hound like hard, and the hound is uh, very injured. He's uh, he is dying possibly, and he starts to tell Richter kind of what's going on with the future. Now there are some parallels here because in their attempt to highlight the fact that. Richter is Hispanic, which I think a lot of people kind of missed back in the day. They give him kind of a reddish skin tone, which kind of looks more like how like comic book coding for Native American back then. And the Hound has the same skin tone as Richter. He's got about the same body shape. And even though his mohawk is green, the shape looks just like Richter. So I think there was an implication that maybe... This was an maybe this was an alternate version of Richter, or they just made them look alike to kind of uh, give them like a bonding parallel. But the Hound he starts giving uh, Richter some information about what the future is. He says, "You fool! You are fools to oppose my master, uh, Ahab. He was bred to stop your kind. You don't know his power to capture, to transform, so that you are his alone to serve him, body and soul, mm, body and soul." say uh, Claremont and, and Simonson uh, ism but you will learn to your sorrows I have learned Ahab will take what he chooses and you will die for in my time you are already dead but then Ahab shows up and he's mad that the hound has given the heroes that much information and he throws his harpoon and it goes through the um, to the hound's chest and disintegrates him and then uh, Ahab teleports away and here, Richter is very upset because he feels like, you know, if he hadn't blasted the the hound that hard, if he'd used a little more self-control, the hound wouldn't have been possibly mortally wounded and he would not have given all that information and then Ahab wouldn't have stabbed him. Um, so Cable comes up to uh, maybe kind of ease, I wouldn't say comfort because Cable's not really exactly a comforting soul, but to kind of ease his frame of mind. And uh, Richter says, you don't have to say it, Cable. It's just like the danger room, isn't it? I shouldn't have, I should have acted less impulsively. If I had, that poor guy would still be alive. And there's actually a pretty cool shot of Cable in this. He, 
there's a close-up of Cable's face, and the way it's drawn, it's kind of Superman-like, uh, where he is. He doesn't look as old as he usually does. He's not scowling. He's, he's got kind of a kind look in his eye. And he said, he would still be Ahab's slave, and little Franklin is captive. You didn't kill him, Richter. Remember that. His death was his master Ahab's doing. But your attack freed him of his conditioning, if only for a moment. Because of you, he died free. And I kind of like that. You know, there's other shows out there that explain X-Men-related books who are very critical of that and saw it as kind of callous on Cable's part. I don't, because I know the kind of person that Cable's supposed to be. And in Cable's mind, that is a comforting thought. At least you help. This person was going to die anyway, but because of you, he died uh, a free individual. So I, you know, I kind of like that. Um, so then Franklin goes off and he goes to a, the American Museum of Natural History in New York and he summons a, a teenage, well, let's see, how old is she supposed to be? She's very young, uh, a, a young Rachel Summers, and they're hanging out, and t- he makes himself look younger as well. So they're about five years apart, and this Rachel is talking about how Franklin has always had power since he was little, and she is, uh, let's see, she's eight, so I'm guessing he's about 13, so she's eight and doesn't have powers. And in this real, in in this fiction that Franklin's created, he's always had powers. And that's when a sentinel attacks. And this is a real sentinel. It's really been sent by Ahab, but it blasts Franklin and it blasts Rachel, and they don't even notice. Like they keep going on with their conversation, like they don't know what's going on. So that is really the first clue in the book that maybe Franklin is not physically here. And so um, there's a bunch of hounds and they show up and Franklin just destroys the Sentinels when he, he finally notices what's going on. He's, and he gets mad that his fiction has been interrupted and he destroys the Sentinels and he kills the hounds. And as he kills them, he gets a psychic, um, idea of who these people were before they were transformed into hounds and he gets very upset and that's when he takes his younger self and he locks his younger self's powers away and that's when young Franklin goes into a coma and so now young Franklin doesn't have any powers just the way this version of Franklin did not have any powers in his future. And this is where the story starts to forget that uh, exactly what's going on with the timeline because Ahab says, um, I don't have the exact quote here, but basically he says that because adult Franklin has locked young Franklin's powers away, now history will play out the way it's supposed to. Now it's possible that Ahab could be saying that because this has happened, your timeline is going to play out the way my timeline did, but it doesn't really read that way. So um, I don't really know how to take that. 
uh, I mean, it straight up reads as history is going to align itself into, so this timeline becomes my future. But again, it's, I think maybe they put this story together kind of quickly and were exploring more the themes of Franklin's kind of desire to set things the way that he thinks they were supposed to be more than worrying about the details of what's going on with what timeline as a matter of continuity. Now also, let me see if it's in this one. Hang on one second. I'm going to flip through it here. Uh, No, we do not have the confrontation between Cable and Ahab yet. But one of the characters, I think it's Bobby. Yeah, so Sunspot notices that he thinks that Cable and Ahab look similar. Now, I'm going to go into that more when we get to the later installments of the story. But I'm going to take a break right now, and I will come back shortly, and we will talk about the X-Factor Annual. Okay, up next is X-Factor Annual number five. Now, one thing I should point out, um, there was an editorial goof-up when the story was being published. There's an actual little editor's note in the front of New Mutants Annual that explains, you know, some people are on vacation, and some people got sick, and yada, yada, yada. So even though the covers of these stories say that X-Factor is part two of the story and New Mutants is part three of the story, it's actually the other way around. Um, So if you do choose to look these up on Marvel Unlimited, just keep in mind that the the covers are misleading. Also, keep in mind that even though these came out in, I think, June of 1990, for some reason Marvel Unlimited has the first three parts down as January and the fourth part down as September, which is pretty weird. Um, Now, I am just barely going to touch on this installment. One, Cable is barely in it. He's in the background in a couple panels firing a gun. I don't think he speaks at all. The New Mutants are barely in it. Um, The art in this is terrible. Um, I can't find the credits for it. Uh, They're not. I don't see them anywhere in this book. It could be that I've just flipped through it very quickly and not noticed them, but I don't see it at all. Whoever the penciler is, I am really not a fan. Um, It looks like there's just a ton of different inkers working on it, but man, I do not like this. But what we need to know for the purpose of this story is that uh, even though it doesn't really have anything to do with the point of this podcast... um, This is the first time that Rachel Summers meets Jean Grey, and it does not go well for Rachel. Jean kind of rejects Rachel, which is ironic because it is Jean's parents' rejection of what they thought was Jean during the Dark Phoenix saga was what made uh, Phoenix Jean go all Dark Phoenix. So I'm sure that was intentional. But the main takeaway is that after running around and causing a lot of chaos, um, Franklin first tries to drain all of Rachel's power from her, and she shrugs it off at 
at first, at first they kind of she starts to give in because the effect is kind of tranquil, but she resists, and the phoenix is too much for Franklin, and he leaves. But later, Franklin shows up and abducts baby Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. One because uh, the baby doesn't belong. He doesn't think the baby belongs in the timeline because baby Nathan did not exist in his timeline. And also that he knows that Rachel uh, has an affection for the child. Um, That is really all we need to take away from this. Uh, Man, the art is just not great. And the story is a lot of just big fight scenes. So other than that... Cable is in this, so I've mentioned it, and it's probably appropriate to mention it for the sake of continuity of the story, but it doesn't really have anything of great effect. So we're going to move right along to the Uncanny X-Men Annual. And this takes us to our last installment of Days of Future Present, which is Uncanny X-Men Annual number 14. It's written by Chris Claremont with art by Art Adams. Inks by <clears throat> Dan Green. Yes. Uh, letters by Tom, Tomoko, and Kevin. I assume Tom is Tom Orzakowski. I don't know who Tomoko and Kevin are. Brad Van Cott is the colorist, and Bob Harris, of course, is the editor. Uh, okay. So it opens with Rachel sitting at a diner eating a sandwich perfectly normal thing and then bad guys burst in and she uses her uh telekinesis to disable their weapons and then uh pretty much flies away when she feels a disturbance in the forest now what makes this scene so funny is the close-up of rachel eating her burger she is wearing this hat that looks i call it Day of the Dead Debbie Gibson, because it reminds me of those kind of wide-brimmed hats that the uh, mall pop stars wore in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Thank my high school ex-girlfriend for that knowledge. But it's got these, like, poof ball uh, tassels that hang down all around the brim of the hat, and it is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. This is black hat, black wide-brimmed hat, with pink poofball tassels, it is truly, truly bizarre. But yeah, and I've been told that that was actually a thing back in the day. I I don't know. Now, um, before I go on, I want to say that this installment of Days of Future Past is both my favorite part of it and the worst part of it, because you know I think Louise Simonson's a good writer. I I don't dislike her writing at all. I'm not a huge fan of her plot work, even though I do like her character work. Walt Simonson is also a fine writer. You know, of course, his Thor stuff from the early 80s is legend. But I do like Claremont's writing a little better. Uh, That being said, Claremont has a history of putting problematic things in his writing. Uh, As much as he was progressive towards women's empowerment and um, placing metaphors for LBGT acceptance and um, just racial equality and all that. 
he puts in things that make me uncomfortable when it comes to, uh, let's say, romantic dynamics. So along those lines, so Rachel feels uh, Franklin's, adult Franklin's presence, and she goes and she flies up and they find him. Now keep in mind that in the last installment in the X Factor annual, Franklin had tried to steal all her power and she fought him off. Now, when he finds her again, she's like, oh, well, yes, I have feelings for you. And they kiss. And now they're a couple. So Rachel has aligned herself romantically with someone who essentially tried to violate her on a power level. Um, I know it's not quite the same, but still, it's, it makes, I don't like it. Now, there's one of two things. Either, either he is controlling her with his uh, kind of reality manipulating abilities, which is possible, because we'll see he does that more and more in this, in this issue, which is problematic in and of itself, or she has just kind of given up willingly her own agency. So I don't, I don't like either one of those things. So, and keep in mind that uh, Franklin has also stolen her baby brother. I don't know if she knows this or not. I don't think so, because I think she flew off in X Factor um, after confronting Jean and Jean rejecting her. Um, so she may just not know this, or he maybe filled her in, and, he's, and she's okay with it anyway. But they go see the Fantastic Four in X Factor, and Franklin then mind controls uh, Reed and Sue and Scott into them being okay with the two with Rachel and Franklin going off together to parts unknown and pretty much into leaving them alone. And he doesn't bother doing that to Jean because Jean is intentionally not being emotionally invested in Rachel right now. She just cannot deal. Next, we have a cable scene. Yay! So we have Gambit and Little Storm breaking into the sub-basement of the Xavier Mansion. And this is the this is when Gambit first teamed up with Storm. He's not a actual member of the X-Men yet. Um, and when they go into the basement, they set off an alarm, and Cable shows up. And there's a really brief scuffle between Little Storm, who knocks the gun out of Cable's hand and does some kicks. But he knocks her down because he's a really big cyborg guy and pins her to the ground. And then uh, Forge and Banshee and the New Mutants all come out of somewhere. And they're like, hey, what's going on? And this is where we get the other uncomfortable scene where to convince Cable and Banshee and Forge that they are who, that she is who she says she is, she walks up to Forge and has a tender moment with him, which in, I get that it's her restored personality still in the body of like a 12-year-old, but it's still the body of a 12-year-old. And that is... Awkward, to say the least. Uh, interesting bit of note, uh, completely off topic. This storm uh, would get reverted to her adult self during ex um, the Extinction Agenda, which we'll be covering in a couple of episodes. Uh, 
but in X-Men Forever, which is a 2010 series that on paper at least is supposed to be what Claremont would have done if he'd stayed on the X-Men books after adjectiveless X-Men number three. He reveals there that uh, Storm never actually got re-aged, that the person who appears to be a re-aged Storm is a, is a doppelganger, and that the real Storm is actually still Kid Storm. So apparently he had, I don't, you know, I've said on Twitter a few times that I don't know if X-Men Forever is really what he would have done, or if this is just the ideas that he came up with in the almost 20 years since the time that he left the book. But it is interesting. So moving on from there, everybody gathers up and Cable tells them about how adult Franklin showed up and manifested his version of the future New Mutants. And that's where Storm reveals that it's not possible that it really could be Franklin because during the Days of Future Past storyline, she actually saw adult Franklin die. And... Um, she says, whatever this lost soul claims he is, either an imposter or something far worse. So, you know, obviously we know that he's a time ghost, but nobody really knows what's going on right now. Next, uh, we have Ahab and his, they're sentinels, but they're not giant sentinels. They're like maybe eight feet tall and they show up and they zap Cyclops and Invisible Woman and take them hostage. And we see in a few pages where he transforms them into hounds. <laughs> and they look pretty goofy. Now, I have a lot of respect for Art Adams's artwork. Um, his close-ups, for the most part, look really good, especially his Ahab. But like 1989 through like 1991, he was seen to be going through, I don't know if it was an experimental phase or maybe it was just who was inking him at the time. But I remember not liking this artwork when I read this as a kid. And he also had an Excalibur special called Mojo Mayhem that he did the art for that I did not like either. And those were both my first exposures to his artwork because I didn't read the X-Men annuals back in the 80s that he did. So for a long time, I had a negative opinion of Adams's artwork, but Cyclops gets this like big kind of industrial suit of armor. And <laughs> it looks like it has sharpened bits of rebar poking out of these massive shoulder pads and out of the top of his helmet. And then Sue is wearing like a green version of her costume. <laughs> Only there's like a line through the four, kind of like, you know, the Ghostbuster symbol, like, no, no, not four. And then she has like a spiky belt. And then it looks like she has the Molecule Man's shoulder pad things. It's like this thing that comes down over her. It looks like her head would fit through it and then it would rest on her shoulders. And it's got like these massive shoulder wings that stick out. And then her hair has like the little Quicksilver horns on it. And I know they're supposed to be hound lines, but the way her hair is like that and the way she has the... Uh, giant shoulder thingies and then the green costume it really is reminiscent of Molecule Man so it is pretty pretty bad <laughs> but man Ahab looks awesome I gotta say especially on the uh, the first panel on the digital 
on page 19 of the digital copies of close-up of Ahab's face and he looks amazing um like he's got this big his um his right eye is cybernetic and it's kind of recessed in his head and you see it's like this little pink lens um or like camera where his eye should be and there's a scar running up from it and his skin is kind of like grayish brown um and then it's got like all these crags and stuff in it, it looks really neat he's got these just huge peaked eyebrows and he looks his ahab looks great i think it's another example of an artist who's maybe at the moment having uh going through a phase where they're not doing human looking characters so great doing really good in human looking characters but uh between the page of cyclops and sue getting kidnapped and the page of them being transformed there is a page where everyone's gathered uh at the uh elsewhere in four freedoms plaza so uh scott and sue were on the roof everyone else was in like the penthouse of four freedoms plaza so we have, the, we have the rest of Fantastic Four, we have the rest of X-Factor, we have the New Mutants, and we have Forge, Banshee, and Storm representing the X-Men. And this is where Storm tells them, and this is where it gets a little confusing with the timeline. Um, so she tells them the details of how Days of Future Past worked out, where you know there was uh, adult Kate Pride's uh, mind being sent back, and then Rachel coming back and all that. And she mentions how Senator Kelly's assassination was the inciting incident. Um, and Storm mentions, you know, they thought they had eliminated the timeline by saving him. And what gets a little confusing is, and maybe I'm just reading too much into it. It sounds like if Reed wasn't in this page and if Reed wasn't discussing it, I would say it would be characters who don't normally deal with things of that pay grade, like timelines and changing time and all that, just not knowing how it works. But we have Reed here and he's like, and Storm says, well, I thought we changed the timeline. And this is where Reed would step in and say, well, that's not how it works. You don't change the present by changing the past you form a um divergent timeline and so i think what it's in what it's implying in the comic is that the timeline did not change which is true but the way it's worded feels awkward and it's also where you know they talk about how in his time franklin didn't have powers and so, you know, they're alluding to the fact that history, if, well, not not history, but the future is reasserting itself because Franklin wiped out young Franklin's powers. So, again, it's just like a, I know it's like a continuity nerd nitpicky thing, but it feels like it maybe should have consequences in the story and it necessarily doesn't. So Scott and Sue track down Franklin and Rachel to where they are having a late night lakeside picnic with baby Nathan, which is weird. And I should also point out that in this, baby Nathan has red hair, which wouldn't be unusual given that his mother was a redhead. 
but it's not uh, something that's commonly shown during this time. I think it's pretty much ignored other than this. But they capture uh, Franklin and Rachel, and they take them and the kid back to uh, wherever his wherever Ahab's base is. But then all the good guys show up, and there's a huge fight. And during this fight, uh, Cable grabs Ahab's harpoon, and he can't pull it out of Ahab's hands. And Cable is shocked when he looks up at Ahab and he thinks to himself, his face. And Ahab goes, what's wrong, Cable? See someone you know? Ha 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 ha. And then he kind of knocks Cable out. Um, and we'll touch back on that in just a moment. Um, and then he, um, he pretty much tries to take out all the good guys. But he fails to kill uh, Franklin. Franklin just kind of, his from where he's laying on the ground, he just becomes floating energy person. And then he tries to kill Rachel, but Gene stops that. And Ahab decides this is all too much trouble because they might have won the battle, but he knows how the future plays out, which I will touch back on again in a moment as well. And then that's when Franklin uses... Uh, uh, or I should say it's when Storm helps Franklin realize that he's not the real Franklin, that he's pretty much an energy being, and that he has been siphoning Rachel's power this whole time to be able to uh, warp reality, uh, basically by telekinetically changing things on the molecular level and siphoning Franklin's powers to be able to manifest but uh, basically, he gets in a big science machine with little Franklin, and as he discorporates, uh, Rachel uses her powers to pretty much fix uh, Scott and Sue and turn them back to normal. And little Franklin wakes up, and everything's fine. But then Rachel is upset because what the intention is is that somehow franklin going back to his own time was supposed to give his adult self powers before he died which would have changed the outcome of their timeline but then rachel is upset that she still has the hound marks on her face and all that so she's upset that it didn't change the timeline so, again, it is an issue of, it's it's just frustrating that they, tr they don't seem to remember that this is, again, it's a separate timeline. When Ahab goes back to his time, he's like, well, I know you're all going to lose because things are different where, I'm t where I come from, but he comes from a different timeline timeline. He's not from the future of the 616. He actually had to cross over to the 616 universe from the 811 universe. Now, again, I can understand why Rachel, if Rachel doesn't know, and if most of the heroes don't know that changing the past doesn't change the future, I can see why she'd be upset because they, she wouldn't realize that it would just change, you know, it would make a splinter timeline. But Ahab's comment about him knowing how the future is going to turn out if he had said something along the lines of, well, I know this isn't going to change my time no matter what, that'd be different. 
but the wording is kind of all in it. Um, and that's pretty much how it ends. We're Rachel flying off and being upset. <laughs> it's kind of a bummer of an ending. Um, and then there's a little story at the end with Wolverine and Jubilee and Psylocke in Madripoor and uh, at some point during Rachel and Franklin's little time together, they appear on Madripoor and then leave. And I'm not going to go into that one, but that's pretty much the end of the story. So, dubbing, doubling back around to Cable's comment that he recognizes Ahab's face and Ahab you know, laughing about it, saying, you know, Do you, don't you see someone you recognize? Now, apparently, there was a theory that Ahab and Cable were supposed to be the same person. I did not realize this until just recently when, when it was pointed out to me on Twitter. Now, keep in mind, I haven't read the story since I was like 16. And even though Rob and Louise had conceived of Cable being a time traveler, it was not, the readers didn't know. We, the readers, did not know about it at the time. And so I never equated the two and the whole time travel thing wouldn't come out for a couple more years. I think right, uh, right before, um, executioner song during blood and metal is I think when it gets confirmed that cables, a time traveler. So yes, there are similarities between Yes. They're both cyborgs. Yes. They are both look like they're in their later, later middle ages like in their 50s, and they're both time travelers. So I took a hard look at this because people have asked me to address this. And so I shall. Now, I, if I didn't know anything and I was just going through a cursory glance, I would say that no, it was never the intention for them to have been the same person. And that basically boils down to really trivial things like Cable's left eye is cybernetic and Ahab's right eye is cybernetic. Uh, Cable's nat- you know, uh, human eye, his biological eye is blue. Ahab's biological eye is brown. Um, that is the, the main thing for my, for my guess on this. Now... Remember, it was Cable was kind of Rob's baby, and this was largely this was a story that Rob was left out of, and I get the feeling there was a lot of friction between Louise and Rob, and this was Louise working with her friend Claremont, so I think it was their opportunity to kind of try to take Cable in a different direction, and see if it would play out. That's one theory I thought of, but I don't think that's the case. Again, I think this was just something that they were, they were, they wanted Cable to be mysterious. And I think they were trying to introduce mysterious elements. Now I found some interviews, um, where, you know, and again, it's from Rob's point of view and he tends to cut Louise out of the picture as much as possible when it comes to the creation of Cable. He didn't say anything about Ahab, uh, but I did find a really brief section of an interview with Fabian Nicieza from where he takes over Cable and really fleshes out the time travel thing. And he pretty much confirms, 
yeah, this was just something that bought the, the line about uh, cable recognizing Ahab and Ahab's response to it was just something that Bob Harris insisted that they put into this story. I don't think it was really meant to mean anything. Um, and again, there are physical dissimilarities between Cable and Ahab. So no, I don't think it was ever Marvel's intention for them to be the same character. Now, that being said, I wish Ahab had been more of a nemesis for Cable. Because I like Ahab. I think he's a cool character. I think he's visually interesting. Um, I like the whole thing of him being a mutant hunter interesting. Um, and, you know, I, the fact that there are time travel and cyborg parallels would have made them a good foil for one another. And again, I am kind of disappointed that Ahab wasn't a bigger deal than he is. But as far as them being the same person, I'm, I've examined many of the what-ifs that could have come from the evolution of Cable's character, and I'm honestly glad it played out the way it did for the most part. There's some bits that we're going to get into where it's just Rob writing the thing that I'm not a fan of, but I like how those elements were taken and either tweaked a bit or are redeemed. So, but again, we'll get into that much later. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention is that Ahab uses hounds in this. This is where the hounds come from that, that Rachel was transformed into. Now, again, this came out in the summer of 1990. In the, I don't remember if it was late 1989 or early 1990, when you have the whole thing with um, Young Storm and Gambit on the run from the Shadow King. Um, but I remember the Shadow King using hounds at the same time, too. He possesses a guy named Jacob Reese. And then he influences a girl, a young lady named Leanne, and she kind of becomes like his hound master, right? And so there's this whole scene in this one really great issue of Uncanny X-Men where Gambit fights a bunch of hounds on, I think, a train? Or maybe an airplane? No, airplane. Really cool issue. Um, but they look almost identical, like black leather bodysuits with spikes and the lines on their face. Also, around the same time, again, I think late 1989, during the Cross Time Caper, um, Excalibur lands on a universe and lands in a universe where they're having to oversee a contest to see who the next Captain Britain of that world is going to be. And so Rachel has her Phoenix powers are burned out and she pieces out to go have adventures. And she, in that reality's version of Jean Grey, get attacked by hounds. Now, these hounds are employed by these big, blue, overweight guys that I think from the dialogue are supposed to be kind of indicative of corrupt British politicians and super rich business people. But the three of these are, these three versions of the hounds are never connected. And they're all Claremont things. And it's, I had somewhere in my mind kind of hoped that maybe Ahab was the thread that connected the, um, the other dimensional hounds and the Shadow King hounds. That maybe because he was somewhere in between the time streams that he was kind of like a 
interdimensional hound uh, dealer, right? Like I say, oh, I've got these hounds. You know, my theory was that the hounds all originated with the Shadow King, that he psychically turned people into hounds, and then Ahab used them and then sold them to people in other timelines, which I think would have been really cool, but it didn't pan out that way. But that is the end of Days of Future Present. Um, you can probably tell this was not my favorite story. It's not a bad story. Most of the things that I don't like about it are just nitpicky nerd things. Um, I, I liked the Claremont installment best, but again, it did have uncomfortable elements. Um, and again, it's not really a story about any of the characters that appear in any of the books whose annuals they are. You know, it's not a Fantastic Four story. It's not an X-Factor story. It's not a New Mutant story. It's not an X-Men story. It's a Franklin Richards story. And again, I just don't care about Franklin Richards. Now, if you're, if you're a big fan of Rachel Summers slash Gray, she's in the story a lot. She's very prominent. You know, maybe that's your thing. And if it is, good for you. And if you like Franklin Richards, good for you. I don't disparage anybody for liking the thing that they like, because I like liking things. And I like it when other people like things. But again, it just wasn't for me. And again, Cable played a very small part of the story. So that does it for Days of Future Present, but that does not do it for this episode yet. Because this is basically a story about the power of nostalgia. I wanna talk about nostalgia because I'm honestly kind of fascinated by the nature of nostalgia and how it works with the human brain. And what I generally conceive of as how nostalgia works is how it's influenced, how the object of nostalgia is influenced by the events surrounding it. Now, like I've said a few times, I was living in a suburb of Savannah, Georgia when the, uh, when this issue and this run of new mutants began. And that was a place where it was kind of an island of happiness in kind of a tumultuous childhood. Um, but I was really happy there. And I think that influenced a lot how I viewed uh, the comics that were coming out at the time. Um, you guys know that I am an aficionado of Captain America comics and Looking back, the Captain America stories that were coming out around this time were not the greatest, but I have a fondness for them, and I like the uh, Avengers stories that were coming out around this time, even though, again, they may not be the best in retrospect, and I really like the X-Men comics that were coming out in this time. This was the era where Jim Lee was starting to take over the art, and even though the art in those books is amazing, the... I'm... As I've mentioned, I'm starting to kind of lose some of the shine of Claremont. There are some problematic elements to the story. And while I appreciate Louise Simonson's uh, character work, I'm not a huge fan of her plot work. Um, and of course, there are some issues with Rob's art. But because I was really happy at a time that these were coming out, I held them in great fondness. Now, I lived there for about two years. And in the uh, very, in like January of 92, I moved and I moved to a suburb of Atlanta. And I enjoyed that a lot less. 
and I've noticed that my appreciation for the X-Men books began to diminish very shortly after I moved there. Um, I would say that the elements in the X-Men books at the time that I was more forgiving of, before I was no longer, and they became, they came into sharper focus. And it was about, I would say, probably by that summer, summer of 92, I had given up on the X-Men books altogether. Now, in retrospect, I wish I had not done that because very shortly after I dropped those books is when they start getting really good. And even though I wasn't into them, I kind of kept up with them. Uh, a friend of mine was still really into X-Men and was reading Wizard Magazine. And of course they talked about it all the time because it was a hot property. So I'm familiar with a lot of the stories that came out throughout the 90s, like all the high points, like Phalanx and uh, Fatal Attractions and Age of Apocalypse and so forth and so on, Onslaught. Um, and now I'm in a place both physically and emotionally where I'm really happy, like a lot. You know, I have struggled with anxiety and depression a lot. I am like a million percent better right now. And I think that's making me go back and view some of the things that maybe I look through, I saw originally through a lens of less than idyllic situation. I'm looking at them a lot more charitably now. And I'm kind of experiencing what Franklin was going through in the stories, a nostalgia for something that you never actually experienced, where it's a nostalgia of basically surface level familiar, familiarity and desire to get into it much more. Since I started doing this podcast, I started redoing the cable read-through that I did a couple years ago, and I have since expanded it to both Uncanny and Adjectiveless X-Men. And um, shortly after where I am now in my read-through, I'm at the period just past Executioner's Song, but I'm also going to start incorporating X-Factor and Excalibur into it. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm embracing it fully. And I'm also uh, really grateful for the kind of X-Men podcasting culture that I am now a part of. So again, I find nostalgia absolutely fascinating. And I think the mechanism of how you view the object of nostalgia in relation to the circumstances surrounding that object are just immensely interesting. So now that does do it for this episode. Um, you can always find me on Twitter at StormChaser2162. The opening music for the show, as always, is the song Time's Arrow by the band A Sound of Thunder, because nothing says cable more than a metal song about time travel. Next week, I'll be back with the uh, ongoing New Mutant series where we talk about Cable and the kids going to Madripoor and meeting up with Wolverine and I'll have a special guest on with that and I will be back with that episode soon because with Cable it's always just a matter of time. Body slide by one. <laughs>